up uh, in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 18, but I want to just springboard into it off of a portion of what Paul says in uh, chapter 1. So if you go up just a couple verses to verse 27, here is Paul's request, his command to the church in Philippi. He says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything in your opponents. And then if we go back down now to chapter 2, we begin to see that Paul uses Christ as an example in the great Christ hymn. He says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then we come to our text. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that In the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul is speaking into the situation of the Philippians, and he's contrasting a couple of things here, their behavior, their growth in the Lord, and he's making some observations. Things are starting to get a little bit bad for them. They are facing some difficulties. Some things are changing. Uh, there's a little section that we jumped over there, 
where he talks about how they've been granted to suffer just as Christ has suffered. And they're about to face these difficulties, and they are facing these difficulties. Uh, And what Paul is trying to do for them is to remind them of their responsibility to be Christians. The responsibility to be Christians in the midst of things changing. And he does this uh, through a couple different ways. First, he does this by rooting them in the gospel, and then he asks them to pour forth from the gospel. He wants them to be rooted first in the gospel, and then to pour forth out of the gospel. Now, Our text in verse 12 through 18 is really just the elaboration, the continuation of what he has said earlier in verse 27. He wants, he has a request for them uh, in chapter 1 verse 27 that that they would uh, have unity, that they would be standing firm in one spirit with one mind, continuing that work, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And, And he takes that, that command, he takes that charge that he gives them, And then he rolls into the great Christ hymn as the foundation for their work. Because it's easy to hear a command and say, well, how in the world am I supposed to do that? To be given a task and say, all right, fine, but like, I don't really know how to accomplish that. Or that seems difficult to accomplish, or I don't think that I can do that. And so what Paul does is he roots their command in the gospel so that not only are they given this charge to be like Christ, but they are given Christ as the example from which they should try to live out this command. This is what he does through the great Christ hymn. He leads them from this command not to a simple step-by-step, well, here's what you ought to do and here's what ought to happen, but he takes them from this very practical command straight into theology. He takes them straight into, here is Christ. And when we do theology correctly, theology always ends in doxology, worship. If we are rightly seeing Christ, then that rightly seeing of Christ should end in worship. And for Paul, that is exactly what he wants them to see. He wants, to, he wants them to, to sit in that place that tension where they are seeing Christ clearly, so then they will respond in worship. He's led them in worship. He's pointed them to the cross. And at the cross, he tells them, this is the ultimate example of obedience. This is the ultimate example of servanthood. He uh, points out that when we look at the cross, when we see all that Jesus did, although he didn't have to, although he gave up his own uh, glory, he put it off so that he would come in the form of a human, in the likeness, in the form of a bondservant, although he would live on this earth, he did this for our sake. And Paul knew that when we reflect upon Jesus, his work, when we reflect upon the cross, when we exalt Jesus together, we find unity. We find unity through worship. We find reconciliation between broken people. And that's really the the situation that surrounds where we're at. There is brokenness in the world, and what we need is to see Jesus together. 
We need to come and bring people into a relationship where we are not trying to get them to look at us and to look at our problem, but we need to learn to stand side by side and gaze at the cross together. We find unity around Christ. And this is what Paul is calling them to. He says, if you're going to to obey this, if you are going to stand firm in one spirit, that one spirit is the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of Christ. If you're going to have one mind, if you're going to strive side by side together for the faith of the gospel, if you're going to have that one mind, then you need to have the mind of Christ. You can't have your own mind. Because so often we're told in the Scriptures that we can be people who are double-minded. We're, we want this one moment, and we're going over here the next moment, and, and we're told that someone who is, who is double-minded is driven and tossed like the waves of the sea. But we ought to have a singular mind focused upon seeing and savoring Jesus. And when we do that, when we see Jesus clearly, when we stand in awe of him together, when we lift up his praises, when we exalt his name, then we can have unity and an agreement that he is our God and we are his people. We can have agreement that he has rescued us, he has saved us, and we owe him everything. We're not looking to have agreement on all of these small things first. We're looking to have agreement within the family of God. And out of that, out of that, can we then live out the implications of the gospel. And this is what Paul is getting to in verse 12. Now, here's what he, he's calling them to obey and to live out the implications of the gospel, but here's how he starts this off. He says, if you're going to do this, it's going to pour out from the gospel. He says this, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul says, okay, here's the response that should come forth, the implications of the, hearing the gospel. You should, it should cause you to change and transform. It should cause you to live a certain way. And he's going to call them to this, but look at how he starts off. And I think this is important for us because we were going to have to speak this word into the lives of others that we know who are complacent. The scriptures tell us that we should provoke one another to love and good works. If someone's being lazy in the church, if there's a brother or sister who's just like not really doing their job and they're not really being faithful to Christ, we shouldn't just be like, well, that's their problem, you know, and they're going to get it together. I mean, you should pray for them and you should spend some time doing that first, but it's not just enough to just let them be. You have to challenge them to follow Christ. Now, there's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. And here's Paul lays this out for us, the right way to do this. He calls them out and he says, my beloved. He lets them know that he has strong affection for them. He lets them know that they are important to him. There's a continuing theme of friendship. He's calling them to this high calling and they need to know that they are loved. They're not being uh, reprimanded as people who are being held at a distance or he's not coming at them and saying, you guys are real idiots. You need to get your life together, but he's going to speak the truth in love. And so when we do this with one another, we need to first affirm our love for the beloved before we speak of this higher calling. We want to make sure that the truth comes out, but it has to come with love. 
And Paul does this. And then he reminds them this, like, look, you have a past of faithfulness. You have always obeyed. You've done this again and again. And so I'm not calling you to anything new. I'm just calling you to what you have been doing. Just continue on that path. Now, what, what Paul does is calling them to obey. It's happening right after the Christ hymn. Jesus is this example of obeying. So if they are going to obey, if they are going to follow, if they're going to live out the implications of the gospel, they can see that Jesus has already lived this out so that they might be able to live it out as well. They can look to Jesus. His life, his death, was an example of Jesus's obedience to the Father, right? And we even have the example of Jesus struggling the night before he's killed, he's in Gethsemane praying, and he's sweating these great drops of blood, and he's asking the Lord, like, if there's another way, like, that's the way we should go about this. Because I, I, if, let's try to avoid this whole thing if we can. And he doesn't get direction for another way, and so he obeys. He doesn't say, like, well, I, you know, really, this isn't going to be so good for me, so I'm not going to worry about it, and, like, you work it out. No, even though it's difficult, he still obeys. We find that glimpse into the life of Christ, seeing that he, he did have that struggle. He did try to go to the Lord in prayer and say, like, is there another way? Is there another way? And so for us, we want to obey. We want to have our actions line up with the gospel, with the example of Christ who obeyed, who humbled himself, who considered others interests as well as uh, his own. Do our lives look like Christ's? Do we obey well? Do we consider others? Do we humble ourselves? And so when Paul tells them, like, you guys have always obeyed, what he's essentially saying is, your life has corresponded to the gospel thus far. Continue in that. You've always obeyed. Continue in that. Now, we need to understand that for the Philippians and for Paul and for us, obedience is not connected in, uh, in the sense of keeping legal rules. It's not like, great, you kept the law. But rather, we find in the scriptures that obeying God is connected relationally. We obey God when we know Christ and we live like him not when we keep the rules. Because it's easy, even the Pharisees tried to keep the rules. Oh, you know, we did this and we did this, and Jesus says, your hearts are far from me. You don't know me. They were trying to keep the letter of the law, but not the spirit. They were far from Christ. And so keeping, obeying Jesus is about being near to him and knowing him and being like him, not just doing what it says in the paper. And so Paul brings this encouragement to the Philippians of their past obedience, and he wants it to use it to motivate them in their current situation to work harder in their present, in the future. And so he says this, you've obeyed me in the past, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. It's easy to obey when, you know, you got your supervisor around and someone's watching you and you're like, oh yeah, everything is great. I'm doing amazing. Like, this is awesome. And as soon as they're gone, you know, you're like doing dumb stuff and fooling around and not doing your job. It's much more difficult when we are without supervision, right? 
I'm sure that this is the case for many of us who have gone on, uh, you know, Christmas break. You go away, you change your habits, you go home where things are like a little bit comfortable. There's like a different understood way of life. Oh, yeah, over here, you know, here's how the day goes. Here's the things that we eat. Here's how the schedule goes. And so maybe like you start eating real bad and you don't read your Bible and you fall off the wagon and all these sorts of things because you go back and there's not the supervision, the community, the accountability that you have here. We're all prone to it. And he says that you've got to obey. So how do we obey then if we don't have this supervision, if we don't have, you know, these people? With Paul, you know, he's like, I'm going to go away and I want you to keep obeying. Well, we need to understand that it's not Paul who they're obeying, it's Jesus. The way that you continue to obey is to not say, I'm obeying a human person. I'm not, I don't, I'm not bound to this group of people, but ultimately, I belong to Christ. And Christ sees me wherever I go. He's with me wherever I go. And so if you want to continue on obeying, you have to know who you're obeying. You can't be under the illusion that you are under the simple accountability of human partners. When we choose this path of obedience, it's easy to give up because sometimes it looks dangerous. It looks steep. And so it's easy to look for another way. Try to find shortcuts. But Jesus tells us that the road is long, it's narrow, it's difficult as we follow in his footsteps. But as we follow, we know that we are walking where he has walked. And we know that it will take us safely to the end. And so Paul brings this to their mind. He goes on and he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Uh, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The way to continue obeying Christ is to work out. It's to work out. To bring this about by exercising your faith, exercising those muscles that Christ has given you. Now, Paul is not deciding to go against every bit of theology that he's ever shared, you know, because Paul is all about being saved, rescued, redeemed, salvation by grace, through faith, and not by works. But here, it looks a little bit confusing, perhaps, because he's saying, well, you've got you've to work this out. But working out your salvation here, as Paul writes, what it means is, essentially, live in a way, work out, practice, living out what it means to be saved. To live out the implications of the gospel. Have conduct worthy of the gospel. It looks back to salvation, what Christ has already done, our rescue, but then looks forward to the day when Christ will make us new, 
And when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Paul wants his hearers to hear, to receive, to understand that we are called to take on the responsibilities of salvation. Because we've been given this state, the status, this title, we now have to live out what it means to embody that. Now, he says that we should do this with fear and trembling. Uh, this simply means uh, that we revere God. We, it's connected to uh, this idea that um, we are in awe of him. It's, this fear is drawing us closer to the Lord, not pushing us away. This is a reverence for God. This is the thing that um, we see in the example of Christ who humbled himself and submitted himself to the will of the Father. And so our attitude in God's presence should be one of humble submission as well. Paul goes on in verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you. He's like, live this out, live out con conduct worthy of the gospel. How do you do it? For it is God who works in you, verse 13, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, or I might say in your, in your Bible, uh, to will and to do. Uh, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, Paul understands that it's hard for us to have the desire to do good things, to do right things. But he says that it is God who gives you the desire, and then he gives you the ability to live out the implications of the gospel. On our own, we do not do this. We do not have the desire. We do not want to do it. We fail miserably, but it is God who works within us to accomplish this. God works inside of us. He gives us the active elements that we need to accomplish this. It is fully God's equipping. He makes us capable to work in us. Now, when he says here, it's important for us to see that God works in you, that term there is understood to be a corporate term. It's true that God has to work in you individually, but what he's saying is this call is to the entire church. That means that we have to hold one another accountable. God works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, it's important for us to understand that this is a corporate work because oftentimes within the community of believers, there are those who frustrate the work with their selfish ambition, self-interest, and they blow up the, the work that God is doing as God is bringing a community together to work together. But as we consider this corporate work, 
we have to see that each person has to be committed to seeing that God's purposes, his plan, his will is accomplished in a community. It's not about the individual. It's not about us individually, but it's about the greater community. How can we faithfully put Christ on display as individuals so that the community of believers at large is being shown as putting Christ on display? You've got to be responsible for yourself personally, and then that is reflected in the greater body of Christ. Not only are you responsible for yourself, but you are responsible for provoking one another to love and good works. That means you can't be seeing your, your neighbor sitting on the sideline there and not reflecting Christ's character, but naming the name of Christ and saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but they're not doing the works of Christ, and just let them do that. They need to live it out. And so God works within his people. I think it's overwhelming to hear that God wants us to do works, but we need to remember that we're set up for success. We're set up for success. When our work is empowered by God's work, then our work becomes an expression of God's work. This means not only is there no sacred or secular divide? It means that everything that you put your hand to as a believer can become good and God-honoring work. It can be helpful for his glory in every single way. We find Paul writing in Ephesians 2, he says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So, we are uh, God's work made new in Christ for good works. We have good work to do. And he says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Because he knows we're going to be all messed up and he's the one who gives us the will. He gives us the desire and the ability to do it. So God has to prepare it beforehand because we're going to blow it. And all the work's like basically all the way done and you just kind of come in and do the little finish work. He's the one who has accomplished it and put it all together for us. Now we're told that we, he's done this for his good pleasure. The, the goal of God's work in our lives, of us working together with God, is for his good pleasure, for his glory. And then we go on to verse 14, and Paul begins to give a list of short statements kind of addressing the things that one might think when they're reading this command to work. <laughs> if you're having someone, your boss telling you something, and you're thinking of all the counter arguments as they're listing it off to you, Paul starts to address them individually. He goes off and he says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Because as soon as you're, he's like, you should get to work. He's like, well, what about, and he's like, let me just, let me just, cut you off there, and I'll put it out there. That way you don't have anything to say. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. What he's saying here is there's no sacred or secular divide. It's all God's work. That You don't need to put these things into compartments or categories and, and to live in a way where it's like, okay, now I'm doing spiritual work, and now I'm doing the secular work. If you are a believer, all work is God's work, and all work can honor God. So he says, do all things without grumbling. Don't be whispering and complaining. 
talking against someone, making negative comments, or disputing, complaining, quarreling, debating, raising doubts. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Now, these things, if you've ever managed anyone, if you've ever operated in a group, these are things that can destroy community. These are things that can, you get someone in there trying to make a complaint and other people don't see it, but all of a sudden they start looking for it. They're like, oh yeah, maybe that bad thing really is happening. And they're paying attention and then they want to feel like they're smart, so they say, oh yeah, they tell somebody else, like, yeah, check this out. These are things that can tear apart a community. And Paul is aware of them. But those who are obedient will work out their salvation and do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then he goes on and he makes a couple more statements here that are connected to things that they ought not to do, uh, but more that are descriptive of who they are, who their status is as God's people. Verse 15, he says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. So if you don't grumble and dispute, you can be seen to be blameless and innocent. And he says, children of God, this is who they are, their status, their state, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So they are, we get three adjectives here that set a high standard of character for the children of God. They're to be blameless, innocent, and without blemish. If you're grumbling and disputing, you're probably not going to be seen as that. And what's most important is that we are recognized to be obedient to God, putting Christ on display, making ourselves of no reputation, having the mind of Christ. The watching world should not be able to look at the Christian community and find uh, accusations that have been made to be true. They should see us and see Christ's character and not cultural values that have been attached, uh, you know, to the church over time things that don't accurately and properly represent Christ. We want to be seen as blameless, innocent. We don't mix the good and the bad. We're consistent through and through, without blemish. The way that we speak, the way that we communicate, the way that we interact with others isn't on the basis of anger. It isn't on the basis of fighting, of bringing criticisms, but trying to operate wisely as Jesus would operate. Now, it's important that we see that Paul is not trying to say, here's the way that you become Christians, but rather, here is what it looks like to be a Christian. Because sometimes you look at these and you're like, okay, here's all the things that I need to do, and here's what it means to work out your salvation. And I have to work for my salvation instead of this is what it means when I properly live out what it means to be a Christian. And he says that they ought to do this in the most difficult situation and circumstance ever. 
in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation where people are going to make false accusations, when they are going to say things to you that would be provoking, when the culture is morally bent and twisted, dishonest. He says things are already broken and you're going to have to live this out in this situation. I mean, it seems like with all the stuff that's been going on like in the news, like in the last year, like it's a pretty good descriptor of like what's happening here. And for us, we need to be seen rightly as children of God who live blameless, innocent, without blemish. Why, he, why, why are we doing this? He says, because you shine as light in the world. You are there to reflect Christ, to put him on display. It's the only way that the, the bent, twisted, crooked world is going to see rightly. They've lost their moral compass, and when we live correctly, they see the beauty of Jesus, and they say, that's something I can hang on to. That's something I can attach to. And it helps reorient those who have lost their way. And so we want to shine as lights in the world. Now, because we're living in a twisted and crooked generation, we are also prone to being swept away. Paul acknowledges this as well. Verse 16, he says, You have got to hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He says, you got to hold fast. you got to maintain a grip on someone, Jesus. You've got to hold on to him because if you try to go out on your own, if you try to do your own thing, if you are not anchored yourself, then you will be swept away. You will become a part of the immoral culture. You will become a part of the twisted and corrupt generation. You've got to hold on to an anchor. And so Paul urges the church to live out the implications of the gospel message by the way they live out the life of Christ and their relationships with one another. Do it in a way that it's evident. Do it in a way that Paul says that makes me proud that says that I've I have see that I haven't run in vain that you have been faithful until the very end you see what Paul is doing here is he's boasting in their faithfulness and normally we would say pride is probably a bad thing and boasting is a bad thing but what Paul's saying is he wants to boast in Christ in their faithfulness to Christ and his boasting is boasting in God's glory and God's faithfulness to keep his people and he looks forward to the day where he will stand before Christ. He will be inspected, and Jesus will look at his work, his faithfulness. You see, what, what Paul's doing for those who are hearing his message is saying, I'm going to be judged one day. I'm going to be inspected by the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's going to look at my obedience, not for the purpose of my salvation, but for the purpose of rewards 
And he says, I'm going to be inspected and I want to be proud and you should continue on. Not just for my sake, but also reminding them that one day they too will stand before Christ. He says, I don't want to run in vain. I don't want to labor in vain. I want God to be glorified in you all. And then he finishes up here in verse 17. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul goes on to display how committed he is. He says, even if it comes to the ultimate sacrifice, Paul is willing to pour out his life. He's willing to encounter suffering, no matter how extreme. But he will do it with rejoicing. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, what Paul's doing here goes a little bit deeper uh, because he's writing in context here. And in, uh, for the Jewish people, uh, during their sacrificial offerings, the drink offering was poured out as an additional offering to the burnt sacrifices. And the drink offering completes the main offering. There's the, the burnt sacrifices on the altar, and uh, upon pouring this drink offering out, it makes it pleasing to God. And so he thinks, as he thinks about this, his death is just like a drink offering. It's being poured out on a much more significant sacrifice. Something that, that, that he's willing to pour out to complete. And he's challenging the Philippians to follow, to be faithful, to move forward. Later, Paul would write in Romans 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. For Paul, he's saying, there's nothing that I would not hold back. I am willing to give all. I am willing to give myself as a sacrifice, and we ought to present our bodies as living sacrifices day by day. Day by day. And since Paul's friends are rejoicing in his opportunity to express their faith uh, in sacrificial service, Paul knows that when he's rejoicing, he is rejoicing together with all of them. And, and he, that's why he goes on in verse 18 and he says this, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It's not just me who's going to pour out my life and do it in a way that rejoices, but now, if I'm willing to do that, how much more should you also be willing to do that? I want you to rejoice with me. I want you to make that sacrifice. I want you to obey, to walk with Jesus. And so he ends this on that note of a call to rejoice. Paul doesn't just want to have the joy for himself. He's like, it's not enough just for me to have joy, for me to be excited, for me to be satisfied in Christ. But he wants it for them as well. 
for his hearers as well. Because even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of sacrifice, in serving, in humbling yourself, it is joy, that deep satisfaction in God, that is the distinguishing mark of his children. Because we have identity in Christ. We're not looking to find our our identity in something else. And so when things collapse around us, when things are broken, when all of our money is lost, or we have, uh, you know, a significant death, we can still stand in the midst of the rushing river because we're anchored in Christ. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're happy, but we have joy. Because our joy isn't attached to circumstance, but to satisfaction in Christ. It's the joy that says, Jesus is more to me than anything else that the world has to offer. Jesus is more to me than anything else that I might seek after. Because those things fade, those things break, but Jesus, he remains. He never fails. He never breaks. He's faithful to the end. He's always there. And he's proven his faithfulness the cross every day he's kept his word for his people and so paul is interested in you and i hearing that so that we're not tempted to go and find satisfaction in the crooked and twisted world the culture and society because everyone's selling something everyone says they got a fix that you don't have to work for The only one that's true is Christ. And so we look to him, to be satisfied in him. And so as we begin this new year, as we have new beginnings, we come back to verse 27 of chapter 1. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Joy in Christ enables us to live a life worthy of the gospel, to live and obey faithfully, whether we are being supervised with human eyes or not. It enables us to stand firm in one spirit and one mind and to work for the faith of the gospel and not to be frightened by opponents because it's Jesus who keeps us. And so as we come into the new year, the idea, the, the message that and the charge, I guess, really, that we want to go after is look for joy in Christ. Enjoy Jesus. Simple. See him. Savor him. Enjoy him. Be fulfilled and satisfied by Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll respond to worship. Lord, we're thankful for your faithfulness to us, for your kindness. We're thankful that you have 
shown us your love at the cross. Lord, we need that demonstration of your love because we can be fickle, we can be afraid, and we need to be reminded of how much you cared for us. That even when we were your enemies, you laid down your life for us. And so, Lord, we want to enjoy you. We want to come before you in all humility, submitting ourselves to you. Lord, we pray that you would move us now from theology to doxology. We want to hear the gospel. Now we want to respond. And so lead us into worship, Lord, as we look to you. We love you. Amen.